Manuel Ellis, Trayvon Martin, Oscar Grant, Kendra James, Eric Garner, Sean Bell, Michael Brown, Alton Sterling, Laquan McDonald, Freddie Gray, Walter Scott, Sandra Bland, Sean Reed, Brianna Taylor, George Floyd, along with so many others that we may not know or that I may not even be aware of at this moment in time. It's gone on for far too long, and just saying their names is not enough. It's not going to bring them back. I wanted to bring them into memory in the form of some kind of episode, even if it's, this is just, you know, a movie podcast that you, you know, uh, <laughs> casually listen to, I, I still feel that it's important to uh, be aware and in touch and uh, audibly vocal and... And basically just trying to figure out what's going on and what's been going on and to have some sort of emotional response because how can you not? Uh, You know, I just feel that we need to be somewhat proactive, you know, and it's hard to know what to say and what to do. And, you know, you, you can't bring all those names back simply just by acknowledging them, but they deserve to be acknowledged. They deserve some kind of immortality for their wrongful deaths. And I don't know if recording the names on a podcast will mean something in the long run, but to me it just felt right. And I just, I'm trying to be more thoughtful and compassionate and in tune with what's happened and what's been happening and what will likely continue to happen, whether we're in the midst of a pandemic or not, this is still, this isn't going anywhere because it's been with us for so long that to some degree we're not even aware of it or we take it for granted or we are in denial. But I think what brings all of this forward besides seeing the kind of response across the world at this point is that a lot of this you can learn on your own from books and from films. And there are a lot of resources out there and a lot of organizations that need your help. And I grew up a middle class white kid in suburban Northwest Indiana, which couldn't be more white and I had to learn through, you know, films like Do the Right Thing and Boys in the Hood, what it really meant to be a black person and the struggles that they face and just the systemic racism that just doesn't seem to end. And it's it's gotten to the point where we're at a breaking point. We, we're at it. There has to be something more done in the face of justice, there has to be a lot more uh, repercussions for the police and for any of those who are just 
stupidly close-minded. Whether it's something that they've inherited or it's something they, you know, think applies to a, a religious belief or an ideology. It's just ridiculous to actually have the kind of behaviors that I've seen um, certain organizations instigating and causing more tension when that's not it's not the goal at all to some degree you know i just i just feel like i'm gonna speak briefly here and it's probably not briefly at this point and there's certainly a lot of places that you need to go to and you know you can be doing the research heck start typing in google right now start looking at various social media that is reliable you know you should try to share your knowledge your 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 actions right now whether if it's through donations or uh, or marching or just retweeting something that doesn't come from you you know but from someone who knows this experience firsthand like i've i definitely struggled a bit with putting out and any episode that could address what's going on or what's been going on for quite some time obviously it's systemic and like George Clooney stated recently, it's a pandemic. It's it's etched into our family histories and our DNA. And it's sad, but it's a fact. And you, we have to own up to that. And we have to create a better future. As hard as that can be in the face of all the bullshit. Um, and certainly there's a lot of tension and fear and terror that we all dealt with for, you know, over two months now that has, you know, affected the African-American community in, in, in a large degree. So there's just a lot to process. And, uh, you know, you, you know how to do it on your own. I don't need to preach. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't need to tell you that the truth is a virus and it's something we can certainly try to deny, but we just can't. We're, we're, we're tired of it. And they can't breathe but we can speak. We can say enough is enough. And instead of stating the obvious like that, just go to social media, listen to the right voices that speak their piece, share important links to organizations and GoFundMe campaigns that can help those in need. And I, I'd rather hear from other voices. I'd rather hear from them. But at the same time, I didn't want to be completely silent and complacent. And yes, this is a movie podcast, uh, so I wanted to celebrate the fact that a lot of great films and a lot of great art can serve as empathic experiences, but also they can be educational, they can be helpful, they can uh, allow you in to the storytelling process in a way that allows you to, to know what other people go through in other parts of the world. You know, I can't, I can't travel, I can't have all the experiences that some people have and I have a really hard time learning another language. So really for me, it comes down to accessible, being exposed and having great films, you know, other than just from Spike Lee, to showcase the black experience. And, you know, I want to hear those stories. Um, Sergio Mims was recently heard on the Anthony Mann episode back before we were quarantined. And after participating briefly in a march downtown i just began to on, on the train ride home think of specific films that i think are important to revisit you know I, I mean clearly i could 
just embark on a Spike Lee rewatch journey too. And that would, that's fine. And that's great. Obviously he's made some uh, incredible work, but there's one title in particular that I reviewed with Bill Ackerman five years ago that kept coming up in my head. Um, and it's also one that Patrick recently reviewed very favorably on his fundraiser over at Letterboxd. So I thought it'd be really important to go back to that film right now. Um, you know, I, I was tempted to just cut and paste the discussion I had with Bill five years ago, but that's, to me, that's a little bit lazy <laughs> to just be, oh, here's my rant, and now here's just something that was recorded a long time ago, and it's worth hearing, but I thought it was more special to get Sergio's current perspective and his previous experience with the film, and boy, does he have stories that you're going to be really excited to hear if you're a fan of Blue Collar. And if you're not, definitely seek it out and check it out. Um, I don't believe we go too deep and heavy into spoilers, but it's the, not the type of film that you can really spoil. It, It's all there, and it's worth talking about once you're done watching it. So I hope you'll come back to um, this episode. But, you know, more importantly... We discuss a few more films that are worth exploring. And, uh, you know, we talk about some observations around the city of Chicago and how we're faced with this new reality recently. And it's and it's really upsetting that a lot of the positive energy of a protest has been diluted, you know, a bit to, to, to looters and, and rioting and white supremacist assholes who are just coming in to stir shit up. And it's un- <laughs> it's unreal to see some of the things that we've been seeing. And I think great art can help us process all the different conflicting emotions we may be experiencing right now. And I include blue collar in that, you know, I, I think it talks about the system at large. Uh, and certainly Paul Schrader himself said, you know, this film is about, you know, the politics of resentment, the feeling of being manipulated and not control of your own life. And I'm sorry, but it's, it's when you see Richard Pryor and Yafit Koto in this film, you, you know that they want some semblance of control and power. And that's normal. You know, what happens in, 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 the, in the course of the film would definitely happen. And it doesn't mean you're selling out. You're, you're, you're human to some degree. You want to move forward in life and in this world. You want to be able to take care of your family. And it's incredibly difficult when, you know, the, the, the chips are stacked against you. And I don't know. I just want more people to be aware of a film like Blue, Cla Blue Collar um, along with others here. So without further ado, <laughs> sorry for all of that. Um, just sort of went on instinct. But... Obviously, if you fast forward to this conversation you're about to hear, I completely understand, and uh, I, I greatly look forward to hearing your thoughts. Please send them to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Um, an official episode will be up in a couple of weeks, but right now this is a very special bonus episode featuring the great uh, Chicago film critic Sergio Mims as we uh, dive a little deeper into Paul Schrader's best film, Blue Collar.
Scooters were, weren't, were not the protesters. There was, a, there was a huge protest about two blocks from me over, not three, four blocks from me over on um, Washington Park. I could hear it, which, mm-hmm. which was a huge, a uh, lot amount of people, which went great. Great. Um, yeah. it, now, what, now, what happened is that the looters are simply uh, people who took advantage of a situation. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, people who simply took advantage of a situation. And then also you have all these boogaloo guys and, you know, white supremacists mm-hmm. who were patrolling the streets like in Bridgeport. And, um, you know, and I said, yeah, you know, and then there was a the chaos that was going on around 26th and, and Cicero, you know, and, and I go like, that's this not the protest. The protest no. are what you, you seen here, you know. Uh, the, the people. I mean, not the people going around looting because if, they don't care about George Floyd. They don't care about cops. They don't care right. about all that stuff. They just went out to try to take advantage of a situation. No, you're ex- you're exactly right, and it's it's still upsetting to see certain images, including you know, not too far from where I grew up in Northwest Indiana, just out in Crown Point, of just white supremacist assholes with rifles. And apparently, oh, it's okay that they're doing that as long as they're not pointing the rifles at anybody. They're, I guess it's considered okay for, for them to just have a presence there, and it, that made me angry. Uh, but, you know, like, like I said, emotions are running high, and uh, I was struggling, you know, how to approach just like, a, you know, a bonus episode to talk about things. And then it occurred to me, because... Uh, I was actually communicating via email with uh, Keith Gordon because we're going to, in about a month or so, do an episode on underrated films from the 70s. Because he's come, on, he's come on every year to just talk about some films that he thinks are worth mentioning that people should know about. So we've done the 90s and the 80s already. So uh, the first title that came to mind for me, obviously, was was Blue Collar. And of course, you and Nick uh, post about it on Facebook quite a bit because <laughs> it is yeah. such an important film now more than ever. And it's one that I, I want to yeah. celebrate and champion and talk about with you. Um, you know, cause great films and great art really can serve as these empathic experiences, but they can be educational and helpful and allow you in a peek into a world that you're not familiar with. Cause like I said, I, I grew up as a middle-class suburban white kid in Northwest Indiana and although this film was made, you know, from a white guy out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, somehow he managed to make one of the all-time, you know, great films about race and politics and a whole bunch of other things. So um, I'm very curious to talk with you about your first viewing experience and what it means to you then and today. Okay. Uh, so yeah, Sergio, welcome back to Director's Club again, fresh from the Anthony Mann episode. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk about Paul Schrader's 1978 crime drama, Blue Collar. Um, so what was your first viewing experience? Did you see it in the movie theater? Oh yeah, so when it first came out, I do recall it played at a Chicago theater, uh, which was the big one of the big downtown movie theaters. Uh, in Chicago on State Street. Now, the funny thing about it was that when I 
went to see the film, I really didn't know what to expect because Universal really didn't know how to sell it. Uh, well, they had Richard Pryor, so yeah. they kind of, sort of, try to market it as a Richard Pryor comedy. I mean, if you went by the advertising for the film, it was a picture of Richard Pryor in one of his crazy, wild modes, you know, with a twinkle in his eye and looked like he was up to up to some crazy shenanigans. But when you saw the picture, it was something completely different, which was a good thing because you had an expectation of what you were going to see, and you were totally overwhelmed when you saw what the film really was. Yeah, because he hadn't done a lot of drama. I think the only other thing he did was Lady Sings the Blues. Right, he hadn't done a whole lot of drama. Yeah. Um, you're right. So um, we just didn't know it was going to be a drama, uh, let alone a film, as you said, a film that really dealt with race, uh, dealt with class, dealt with the uh, corrosive nature of capitalism and greed. It mixes all those things together in this picture. And uh, it's not a happy film. No. Uh, the, the, the final image, I, I still remember the first time I saw the film and that the final shot, I was, I was speechless. I was like, that's how the film's going to end? Right, but in a way, that's the only ending for the film. Yeah. But we were so used to seeing the movie that would have a happy ending. Okay, these guys are in trouble, but at the end, they have a happy ending. Um, there is no happy ending. There is um, nothing but hate and bitterness and uh, a film that came out Gosh, now, how many years has it been? Well, you look over 40 years ago, and you look at it today, it still stings. It still has the power. And it still uh, uh, sadly shows that um, the more things change, uh, the less they change. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, certainly knowing... I mean, you could make that film today. Yeah, no. And not change a single thing. What's in, what's interesting too is I think Paul Schrader, you know, he 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 got, you know, a major studio got behind him in, in putting this film together, and I think in the seventies you can make a film like this, you know, and have have a stu have have the blessing of a major movie studio. Right now, you if you were to make this film today, it would have to go independent, you know, and be oh well, that's considered classic. an art house movie, but. You right. got lucky with this. Well, yes and no. As you said, yeah, he got lucky because he was able to make this film. Any film that gets made is lucky, but at the same time, um, I've said this before, 70s were the absolutely one of the greatest decades of filmmaking ever sure. because studios were, were taking risks. Yeah. They were absolutely taking risks because they didn't know what people would want to see. So, hey, why not? Let's just make this. It might work. And it absolutely did. And it's it really does show... Because, honestly, the, you know, the first couple of times I've seen it, I always thought, this is just an absolute perfect movie. 
but I also don't need the reminder, the stinger at the end of, you know, Yafet Kodo essentially saying what the film is about. You know, it's just an echo back to what he said earlier when they're all meeting together uh, to talk about the heist and everything. But now I think that is, it's needed. That is, that statement to be reiterated again, it doesn't feel redundant. It feels absolutely necessary to the film because I think we need to hear that. You know, I think that what Yafet Koto says about how the powers that be will pit, you know, the the, the white against the black and the old against the young. The old the against young. the young, yeah. right. All it, of that. It's devastating. Yeah. And, and I think that um, so many times when some major event happens, mm-hmm. which shakes us to the core, uh, we tend to look at movies. What film can we go and find that can, in a way, explain what's going on right now? Uh, well, the past few months, a lot of people were look. A lot of people went to see. Just um, we look at a contagion. Sure. Uh, and, and I posted some things about there are some other films as well you can take a look at, which deal also with very similar subject matters, such as Ilya Kazan's Panic in the Streets. Right. Yeah, I um, saw that recently too. Or uh, in a more uh, dumb way, the Cassandra Crossing. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when you see what's going on right now, and you say, what film? What what film can somehow give me clarity about what's going on right now? And immediately, what comes to my what came to my mind was uh, Blue Collar. Now, um, for people who the, the film is available on Blu-ray from um, on uh, Kino Lober, and fortunately, uh, Kino Lober has retained the uh, original commentary by Paul Schrader about the making of the movie. Actually, it's more of an interview. He's interviewed by someone about the making of the movie. I think it's Maitland which, McDonough. Yeah. Yeah, when when it first came out on DVD, I think it was Anchor Bay or something, mm-hmm. um, which is absolutely amazing because the film, this was his first feature film. Of course, he had made his reputation with films such as... Um, no, wait a minute. Blue. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, Raging Bull had not come out yet. There will be another two years. But uh, he made driver. his reputation, of course, with with Taxi Driver. That's yeah. what I'm trying to find. And uh, so this was his first feature film. It was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. Uh, it what you see on the screen belies the chaos that went on behind the scenes. Um, Schrader is honest to admit that he was a novice, so many of the mistakes that he made contributed to the difficulty of making the picture, um, and also the fact that he had three actors who were difficult to work with, with three tremendous egos, but um, that script and his careful direction brings it through. Oh, yeah. No, they had basically three different approaches to acting, and they just <laughs> they didn't mesh well together. 
they they really struggled and you know as a result Schrader said it was very difficult and painful and there's lots of confrontation and walking off the set and like I I go back to this film and I still I'm still in awe of that three shot of them on the couch and it's so simple you know it's one of my favorite shots in movies which he explains it was the final shot of the movie uh, during the shooting schedule uh, one of the things that happened in the film is that you you see how sim- I don't want to say simple, but how um, non fussy his direction is. Yeah. He rarely goes for close ups or two shots. Uh, most of the time, when you see the characters together, you see them in these shots where they're, all three of them are together. Mm-hmm. And Schrader said the reason why he did it is because. Uh, Usually you shoot a scene with three guys, and then you then move up and do a close-up of one guy and another guy, another guy, or two shots. He couldn't do that because if he would move in for a close-up shot, one of the actors would leave and wouldn't come back. Yeah, there was very little coverage when he was right, shooting. Right, he had very little coverage. Yeah. So what happened was that he was shooting this final scene when they are on the couch, and he said, this is the shot, just the three of them. I'm not going to go for any close-ups. And um, this is going to have to be it. And he did one take. He says, okay. He did a second take. And he said, okay, I think we got it. Richard Pryor got up, walked off the set, got in his car, and drove off. And he never saw him again. Yeah. He, he, <laughs> <laughs> that's, and that, you can feel it in that scene. It's just but you see, the, but tension. the tension works. You yeah. see, the tension works because because they don't like each other. They don't like the director, and and but Schrader was somehow able to use that tension for the movie. Yeah, and that's and that's exactly what makes it such like a, a like an intense experience to watch. I mean, obviously, anybody that watches the movie, they don't need to know the backstory or anything. But when when you do, you can see it. You can sort of see it in certain moments that, you know... And at the same time, you do get a sense of, oh, these guys were really good friends until all the shit went down. You know, like, you could sense that they had a good camaraderie or at least they were good drinking buddies, you know? that's I like those early scenes right. of ju- them just hanging out. Right. Uh, to give some people background about this picture you haven't, I mean, about the storyline, if, if you haven't seen it, and please, you've got to see it. Uh, Richard Pryor, Yafa Koto, and Harvey K. Tell play three auto factory workers. And um, all three, well, two of them are in over their head. Um, all three of them are being screwed by the union. They're being screwed by the job. Uh, both Pryor and uh, Keitel have financial issues which are really threatening to drown them. And Yafia Kodo, who is an uh, ex-con, comes up with this idea, well, why don't we pull off a, uh, rob our union? Look, they collect all our union money every month. They probably have a lot of it there. It's our money, in a sense. So let's just go in and with, this, with this crazy scheme anyway. 
That's in the way they pull it off is also <laughs> maybe the comic highlight of the movie. Yeah. Let's just go in and steal the money. Well, they don't find much money, but they find something else. I won't say what. They find something else which is potentially much more viable, but also definitely much more dangerous and potentially lethal. Yeah. And what happens is that the people who they have stolen, what they have stolen from, uh, are smart and decide to manipulate these men against each other in various ways. Yeah, and it causes so a that rift essentially in their friendship. Is, right, that essentially is the story. And as I said, it doesn't end happily. Uh, these are men who become, in effect, pawns in a much larger game, larger game being, and what they exploit, of course, they exploit racism, they exploit money, they exploit power. Um, to get these men, these three f friends, to work against themselves and their own better interests. Yeah, it's, it's devastating, you know? I mean, even just, you know, I think it's Yafet Koto who says, you know, at one point, to that we can't be you know together anymore and that means a lot more than just they can't physically hang out as friends it they're it, it's almost like the signifying moment of okay they're gonna all go their own way and they're all gonna approach the situation differently and it's not necessarily their fault it's the powers that be it's the it's the you know evil white devil in the office with the suit, you know, that old guy at one point has that meeting with Richard Pryor and is basically saying, hey, you can be the union rep now, you know? Right. And that gives you the power that you've clearly wanted and you're going to be good at it. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's just heartbreaking, scene after scene. Uh, and, of course, we. I think it's interesting, too, to, to, to mention just the, how... You, you, yeah, you mentioned that Paul Schrader's direction isn't very flashy, and it was his first film. Uh, but man, the authenticity—you know what you're in for when you when, with those opening credits. And this, you know, a lot of it yeah, was I, I was just Cap's about play. to bring that up. I was yeah. just about to bring that up. This film has such an authentic feel to it. For sure, uh, Schrader is a native of Michigan, um, and uh, even though there's no, to my knowledge, carved factories in Grand Rapids where he's from, still at that time, still in the late 70s, car manufacturing was a major industry, maybe the major industry in Michigan. So even if you didn't live in a town that made cars, it was you were still affected by the fact that in some way or another, the auto industry impacted your life. So yeah, he he wrote about what he knew. Yeah, and um, the look of the film—it's not flashy. It's—I don't want to say it's grungy, but it's—it's it's very intentionally unglamorous. Mm-hmm. And um, just—I almost—I almost want to say down to earth, you know. Photography. Nothing is flashy in this film. He gets to the point, and that's the way the film should be. Um, and the thing about the picture also is the fact that um, 
it, it didn't do particularly well at the box office, and I think for a long time it was overlooked. It was so, so overlooked. And I'd say within the last 10 years, maybe, it's been rediscovered. Um, first in Europe, I should mm. say. First in Europe, particularly England, Germany, France, they really got, got on to this film. And it took forever for this film to get a really decent Blu-ray, just let alone DVD release in the United States. As I said before, it was released originally by Anchor Bay, and it was a really, really awful-looking DVD, just awful-looking. And then that was discontinued. And it was absolutely unavailable for many years. Many years. Yeah, the ind- indicator, uh, I think, out of out of England, they, they put it out uh, on Blu-ray. Yeah, indicated it, right. Indicated yeah. it, but even it was a German Blu-ray even before then. Mm. Uh, and I think also there was a Spanish Blu-ray before then. Hmm. Um, and then finally, finally, you know, uh, thank God for Kino. Finally, it uh, is a matter of fact, little plug, I just recorded a commentary for Kino, my latest one, which I'm going to do again, actually. Oh. I'm going to re-record it because I do not like the sound quality. Do not like it. So I'm going to re-record it uh, this weekend. Uh, what's the? Do you, do you know the film that? Um, well, obviously, oh, you yeah. know the film. The film is. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you the film. The film is um, uh, a man called Adam oh. with Sammy Davis Jr. Oh, okay. Which is a really intriguing picture from the summer of 1966. And, but see, but here we go. Um, you look at this picture today, and you're... And, and I, okay, you look at this film today, you may not think twice about it, but you have to think about in 1966 when this film came out. Um, Sammy Davis Jr. plays a self-destructive jazz musician hmm. and there are some really uncomfortable scenes in this picture where he treats people very badly very badly and in 1966 the biggest movie star at the time was Sidney Poitier and Sidney Poitier of course was criticized and also praised for being perfect in his movies <laughs> you know in he had to be almost holier than thou. Yeah, I bet a lot of expectations were placed on him. Right. Right. And, and, And one of the large reasons for that was because of this idea of representation. You know, sure. you know, we have to show that we're good to white people. You know, we can't let them show our bad side. And also what happened, the civil rights movement was still very much an ongoing issue at the time. And it was a great consensus idea by civil rights leaders and people in the movement that in, in our imagery in films and television, we had to be perfect. So white people would say, oh, gee, you know, maybe we'll be so bad to integrate with them. Jeez. Which yeah. is really true. 
Yeah. That so, so when Sammy Davis Jr. in 1966 is playing this guy who is slapping around people and being at people, there's one scene in the film where he um, goes to see his, his booker. And, uh, and his booker uh, is offering him uh, a tour that he doesn't like. And Davis gets mad, and he breaks, like, a wine bottle, and he makes his booker, who is white, get down on his knees in front of him. Oh. Now, remember, folks, this is 1966, right? Oof. And the image of a black man forcing a white man down on his knees to beg forgiveness I, I, first of all, I'm sure black audiences at the time in theaters were cheering. I'm sure the <laughs> NAACP was like, "Oh no," you know, you know. But then again, there's a scene later in the film, close to the end, when Sammy Davis Jr. is at the end of his rope and he goes to see his booker in a uh, in a restaurant, and Sammy Davis Jr. gets down on his knees in front of him hmm. and crawls to him. So I'm thinking the black audience is like, no, Sammy, get up. Don't do that, man. You know, yeah. this is a fascinating movie. Yeah, That's that why I good. had to record it again, because I, I didn't like the sound quality. I, I heard it. I sent it in, and I heard it, and I didn't like it. And I, I told I told Keen, I said, let me record it again this weekend. <laughs> you, you know, I've, I've always done good quality video. This is not up to my standards, you know. Yeah, well, I think I think the listening audience gets the impression that, you know, you and I both consider blue collar to be essential viewing uh you know now more than ever of it course, is but I... especially in these times that's why you know when when i how what we're talking about is our friend nick Julio wgn radio um i belong to uh, among other things on twitter 70 film which is a mm. website i mean which mm. is a twitter page on 70 movies and he had this picture the picture i posted you know yeah uh them yeah. And I said, now more than ever, now exactly. more than ever, blue collar speaks to us. Yeah, and what, more, what other... now more than ever, blue. Yeah, I was gonna say, what so, other what other films speak to you, you know, right now or upon, you know, rewatches? Because like I was thinking, obviously, you know, we've done an entire episode on the work of Spike Lee, but are there other? You know, titles, other black directors well, that of you'd course, like to highlight. You know, of course, the most obvious one is Do the Right Thing, you know, oh, yeah. which I have I have the Criterion Blu-ray of it, and I'm scared to watch it, <laughs> you know, because it's Spike. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but but uh, but but I will I will tell you I'll give you another Spike film though I'll, I'll give you another Spike film, and I think Jungle Fever very much deals with many of the same things that we're dealing with today. I think without sure. question. I just watched it again uh, before everything blew apart. I watched it again about a month ago. Uh, once again, it's just been released on Blu-ray by Kino, and I watched it. And when you think of that movie, and you think of particularly certain things and certain ideas, uh, certain Themes that Spike deals with in that movie, and I said even even with police uh, police harassment, you know, and uh, it's 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 just as relevant today as it was when uh, that movie came out. 
So that's one film I would recommend. I know Do the Right Thing is so obvious, but please also check out Jungle Fever because um, I, it, it's, once again, it said things and it does things, and I, I cannot wait to see The Five Bloods. Oh, I man, mean, I yeah. cannot. I'm counting the days, Which man. Pr- premieres less than a week from now. I cannot wait to see The Five Bloods. Uh, I think Spike has got his groove back. Yeah. And, of course, there's of course, always Black Klansman. How can we forget Black Klansman? And um, I happen to know one of the screenwriters of Black Klansman and The Five Bloods, uh, of Kenneth Wilmot. I've, we were just talking to each other a week ago, you know. Mm. I don't think he's even seen the whole film yet. So um, um, I can't wait for that picture. And I think Spike got his groove back. You know, all directors have peaks and valleys. All directors have peaks and valleys in their careers. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, and Spike's valley may have been maybe a bit deeper than he would have liked, but... Um, and I personally haven't known the guy. I've, he's been a friend. I've personally known him since, um, you know, uh, she's got to have it. So I'm just so happy to see him back in his groove and, you know, with Black Klansmen. And then when I saw The Five Bloods, I was said, oh, man. Yeah, that trailer was electric. And a welcome back, Delroy Lindo, man. I, I'm sure he's been working on TV for a while and stuff. but Well, yeah, he's been on the good... The good fight. Right. The good fight. Right. And he gave a great interview in The Guardian, uh, of which I have to send to you, uh, talking about racism in England. Because a lot of people don't know he's English. He's from London. Hmm. Born in London. And he, he talked about, um, he came, well, his parents moved to Canada when he was a teenager, and then they moved to San Francisco. Uh, before his first 15 years, he was... He's English. He, I think, from I think from Hackney, I think. Um, I think which is also where um, Idris Elba's from, from Hackney in London. Ah, okay. Um, and so um, he talked about racism in England, you know, and he says, you know, the English want to pretend that well, we're not like the Americans. You're very much like the Americans. Hmm. <laughs> You're very much like the Americans. Oh boy! You know, and then when I um, when I see uh, 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 John Boyega, who gave that extraordinary speech at a rally for John, um, yeah, I'm sorry for uh, um, uh, Floyd, yeah, uh, a couple of days ago, which was extraordinarily moving. It was, absolutely. and. Uh, and he said the right thing. He said, I don't care if this is the end of my career. I don't care. Yeah, this is bigger you know, than that. Yeah. You got to stand up for what's right. Exactly. Yeah, and, uh, really quickly, another yeah. another film that came to mind also came out in 1978, uh, Killer of Sheep by uh, Charles Burnett. Oh, well, you know. <laughs> what a remarkable work of art. <laughs> well, the reason I laughed, I'm sorry, the reason I laughed was because... Uh, there was a picture a few months ago of black film directors, and it was Charles Burnett, Reggie Hutland, Ernest Dickerson, um, uh, Robert Townsend. Uh, oh gosh, who was in the picture? Uh, it was for an article for the New York Times. Hmm. 
with all these black directors. And I laughed when I saw the picture. I said, I'm friends with every one of those directors. <laughs> <laughs> I know every single one of them. That's right. You hosted a screening of, of, friend uh, of mine. To Sleep With Anger not too long ago. Right. With, uh, I can call him up anytime or talk, you know. And and uh, Killer Sheep, uh, Charles Manette's film, is, um, it is, um, I don't know how to put words into that film because I've seen yeah. it so many times and if I've, I've, um, it's 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 a film about life, okay. It's a film about life. It's a film about struggle. It's a film. It, it doesn't really have a plot. It's essentially plotless. Mm-hmm. But it deals with a um, a man who, who works in a slaughterhouse, um, and he does this soul-killing job where he every day he has to kill animals for a, for a meat processor, you know, so he's a killer of sheep, also of cows and goats and anything else people eat. And it's a soul-killing job. And then he comes home to really a really loving wife, but in a soul-killing environment, living a soul-killing premise. And it's just the day-to-day struggle of his life and of his family and of the community. And it's very much in the style of a um, of the, Ita- the Italian ne- uh, neo-realist style, right? Yeah, such as the Sica and Rossellini, particularly Rossellini, particularly sure. Rossellini. But, um, and Charles Bennett was very much influenced by those movies. Make no bones about that. He's very much influenced by the films. He makes no bones about that. But still, it the movie has this almost iconic eye of imagery. You know, like the girl wearing the dog head mask. And, <laughs> you know, it's just, and the, his use of music. Which is all pre-recorded music, you know, everything from Paul Robeson, which acts as a counterpoint to the images that you think. To, I think it's Diana Washington. I think you're right. It's not Billy Holiday. I think I think it's Diana Washington. Diana Washington. Yeah. It's just the, his use of music and the imagery, and it's one of my favorite scenes. Of course, is when uh, he he needs a a, a, a motor for a car. So he goes to see the guy, and the guy has the motor in his apartment. Right. Not in a garage, in his apartment. So it's this huge struggle to try to get this thing that weighs at least half a ton out of this guy's apartment into the back of a truck, which must take all day without getting a hernia. And finally, when they drive off, the, uh, the, 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 the engine motor falls out the back of the truck. And you just leave it there. Mm-hmm. It's like the frustration of life. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you work so hard? Why do you do everything? And by the way, the movie took a year to shoot. He shot the film on weekends. Charles shot the film on weekends. And when the when the uh, that wasn't supposed to happen, they were actually just supposed to drive off with the engine. But when it fell off, they were just like. Hell, leave it here. Yeah, keep it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it fits. You know, yeah. it took the whole weekend just to shoot this scene, and it was like it was a perfect metaphor of what the movies are about. 
almost about the fertility of life. But then still there are times of little moments of joy and tenderness and love throughout this picture. It's a remarkable film. It's a remarkable picture. And if anybody wants to... I think we could all use a laugh once in a while, you know, and I, I know it's, it's, it's a time of reflection and certainly, you know, I've, I've encouraged a lot of people to do some reading and, you know, I do a lot of retweeting and, you know, sharing of links and things like that. Certainly there's a lot of books out there, but once in a while, and I'm bringing this up for, for a very special reason, cause you have done the commentary for this, uh, satire, but um, I'm I'm gonna continue to sing the praises of the great Putney Swope, because <laughs> uh-huh. again, like yeah. that film to me was uh, something I'd never seen before, something really remarkable and just one of the sharpest satires uh, out there. And uh, yeah, I've I've yet to explore the work of Robert Downey Sr. and I plan to. I think he's a director I should check out more. Being as huge of a fan. Give me, of uh, give me word of advice. Do not watch up the Academy. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't think that was an essential one from him. Do uh, not watch <laughs> up the Academy. His only like studio picture in his last studio film, and I do not do not want. Yeah, no thanks. But yeah, no, you you do done the commentary for that one. Was that Twilight Time? That was vinegar. Oh, vinegar vi- syndrome. Oh, it was vinegar. Okay. Yeah. It was Vinegar Syndrome. No, Twilight Time is forced to go on now. It's out of business. Yeah. Um, but Vinegar Syndrome. Yeah. I. Uh, that was a difficult commentary to do, only because, the, only because there was so much to unpack in that movie. I'm sure. So much to unpack in that film. And um, it is... Uh, <laughs> when, when Antonio Fargas... Sets the money on fire always floors me. I'm yeah. sorry. You have to see the film f- movie. You have to see the film to see what I'm talking about, folks. But that scene always kills me. Yeah, yeah a lot of but, it But um, it was a movie that was very much, it's, it's one of the strangest films. It was very much a movie ahead of its time, but also at the same time of its time. Sure. That's the remarkable thing about that picture. Yeah, and I absolutely, you know, I could see the influence that it's had on a lot of, you know, a lot of directors, including someone like uh, Paul Thomas Anderson for something like oh, yeah. Inherent Vice. Oh, and Spike Lee. Yeah, Clearly oh, definitely Spike, Spike Lee for Clearly so many, bamboozled. Yeah, so many people, right. It was like as if when this movie came out in 1969, it was made, yes, it was made the day before. Yeah, even though it was made months earlier, a year before, but it almost seems like he was make, the film was being made as you're watching it. Because, it, once again, it was of its time, it, it was ahead of its time and of its time. And um, for those who don't know what it is, it's about a, um, an advertising agency in which there is this guy, Putney Swope, and he's like the token Negro of the agency. And... Um, the head of the agency dies of a heart attack during a meeting. And so they have to vote for a new head, a new person to run the agency. And the rule is that nobody on the board can vote for themselves. 
so they vote for Put. So everybody votes for Putney because everybody assumes that nobody's going to vote for him. He's the least likeliest guy. So of course, what happens is that everybody votes for Putney. <laughs> So he becomes head of the agency, and then he turns it around and turns it on his head. Uh, and it's uh, it's wickedly funny. Truth and, and Soul um, Incorporated. <laughs> right. Nice. And right, he's now going to start making TV TV commercials that basically reflect what's going on at the time. And remember, at this time, 68, 69, you know, people are comparing this time to 1968. And uh, I was a kid, but I remember 1968, uh, and 68 was a crazy year. So, uh, I mean, not only did you have the assassinations of Martin Luther King and... uh, and uh, uh, Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, you also had the Tet Offensive, which happened earlier that year, and the Tet Offensive was this major offensive against uh, American and South Vietnamese troops by the Viet Cong, in which basically the Viet Cong came from every corner of the They came from everywhere, north, south, east, west. And it was a disaster for an American. And that was the event that began to turn the American public against the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. It's that offensive. And then there was, um, oh yeah, the Chicago 1968 Democratic Convention. Oh, of course, yeah. Covered in uh, the great Medium Cool. Medium Cool by Haskell Wexler. Yeah. And um, I, I happened to have met Haskell Wexler about over a year before he passed away. Oh, wow. When he was at the Chicago National Film Festival, I saw him standing, you know, at a reception, and I went up to him, and I, I said, you're Haskell Wexler. And he said, I am? <laughs> and, and uh, first of all, not only that, he's one of the greatest cinematographers ever, one of the great legendary, cine- great legendary cinematographers. And we just had this wonderful conversation for half an hour about medium cool and his work in films and everything and he was the nicest guy you could meet and he was so kind and i remember telling him as a kid watching the convention and not understanding what was going on i really sure, didn't understand yeah. what was going on you know but i remember sitting in front of our big did we have the color tv then i can't remember it was later, right? But big console TV, you know, He's like cross legs sitting in front of the TV and watching the chaos in the convention hall with Daly, and then the chaos that was going on outside. Yeah. And I really couldn't comprehend in my mind what was going on. I was just like, why is everybody screaming and fighting at each other? I know, and that's <laughs> it's still happening for a lot of reasons, you know, and. I uh, yeah, I, really quickly thought you know before we close things out here. There's, there was uh, I recently I think it was like maybe late last year. I finally caught up with De Palma's High Mom, which is something I hadn't oh, wow. seen. And I don't know if it was just because it was hard to find, but um, you know, Directors Club was covering De Palma, and I was like, I I really do have to catch up with his early works. And there is. A sequence in Hi Mom that I I was 
so taken aback by and so viscerally impacted by, I I was kind of just like in awe that, you know, it, it even came out. But, you know, you know what I'm talking about, of course, the, the Be Black baby sequence. And yeah, you know what? I, I have not seen that film in decades. Yeah, that is... It's, I, will, I, will, I will have to check it again. Yeah, I just, I just couldn't believe... You know, because again, it, it 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 becomes like a cinema verite moment, and it's you know it's very very much shot with a handheld camera, and it feels it feels like you're there in the moment while this experimental theater uh, group is you know basically reenacting uh, racism in this extreme manner where you know the the white people there who are paying for this experience get to see firsthand what happens to black people. Um, and I, I was kind of, cause a lot of it is, especially early on, a lot of it's very funny and it's so jarring of a sequence, but to me it also said volumes and I have no, idea. I'm, I'm positive it's had, you know, an impact and, you know, influenced uh, a lot of directors to come and, it's just interesting to think of early early De Palma as being really different than uh, later De Palma, where he just you know essentially just wanted to be Hitchcock, but he he was very you know very involved and very invested in in um, the sociological climate of the time, and that came out in like 1970, and it was one of De Niro's first films. Uh, it's just yeah, it's something. It's not again, it's not easy to find, but it's worth seeing for that sequence and you will definitely react uh uh with discomfort but in a way that i think is um is important to experience and it's 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 really really remarkable um but yeah i i again i think we brought up some interesting films that i think people should should definitely check out um so we can we can sort of uh get ready to close things out here and again i really do hope people make an effort to watch uh, any number of films. There's certainly a lot of documentaries, you know, like OJ made in America, for example, good Lord. Uh, that, that certainly was impactful and says a lot of things that are still pertinent today. I'm sorry, which one again? Uh, OJ made in America, that whole thing. Oh my God. You know? Oh my God. Unbelievable. Yeah, I can't. Unbelievable. I think if I watch that now, I might just fall apart. Because, <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's oh, man. It, it says so much. And you think it's just going to be about one thing, and then it really gets into the macro level, uh, you know, of how th- how system- systematic racism is just still a part of, of our culture and our country, and it's just not going anywhere. And it's, again, emotions are running so high, and I think for... Rightfully so. I think it's something that I feel very passionately about. And again, like a lot of my experience with it does come from watching great art and great films. Certainly early on seeing something like Do the Right Thing or Boys in the Hood really opened up my eyes. So I'm I'm grateful for, for a lot of filmmakers for being fearless. Yeah, that's what we need more of today. Yeah, um, I agree. One day we'll be seeing movies again. One day. 
And hopefully what will happen from all this, we'll, we'll see some really extraordinary pictures. I think we will. I, I really do. Yeah. It can't just all be uh, Christopher Nolan films. <laughs> They're saying that now, though. That's uh, what's yeah, wrong. well... <laughs> They're saying yeah, it's, it's safe to say we won't be seeing. I, I think it's safe to say we won't be seeing that soon. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's one of those things though where theaters are like saying, yeah, we're gonna try, we're gonna try for July, and you know maybe yeah. Tenant will be the big film, but I I don't I don't think so either. <laughs> well, they they had they they had they had August as a as a fallback. Yeah. they had they had a August as a fallback. You know, I don't know about that either. Um. Uh, Black Harvest still will be going on, though. It will be this fall. Uh, we don't have dates yet, but it will be this fall. Most likely after, well, let me phrase it this way. We will know after we find out what Chicago National Film Festival is planning to do. Ooh, yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Right, because they're up in the air now. But we will have Black Harvest this fall. It won't be the same. No. Uh, probably socially probably distant seating. this year. Yeah. But we have gotten quite a number of pictures, not the usual number that we get submissions. Um, and there are some big films that we would not get now. But um, it will still be there. It's, it'll still work. You know, we'll have it, you know. Yeah, I'll definitely come out for it. I mean, obviously, any film festival, if it's taking place, you know, in the yeah. fall, I'm I'm going to support and be there for it because... Uh, Man, I'm I'm just craving to see something on the big screen again. There's only so much streaming. Yeah, I think I can everybody do is. Yeah. yeah, streaming is fine, but it's not the same. And besides, movies are a communal experience. You, Definitely. You know, you like to be with people. You know. Um, I'll tell you one good news though. Before I end on this thing, last week, um, uh, Italian researchers and science, scientists have announced that there are no more traces of COVID-19 in the country. Wow. Hmm. Yes. Okay. Well, that's definitely good news and uh, a hopeful sign. They said it has, from the research they're doing, it has mutated into more harm, a more harmless form. Hmm. Now, um, this was last week. This was in Reuters. Oh, Wow. Well, I, I truly hope that's the case because you keep hearing about, oh, there might be a a worse, bigger second wave in the fall, or something like that. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Fall is fall well, is my favorite see, season. The thing about it is that well, the thing about it is that I always kind of take that with a grain of salt sure. because this is since this is a novel coronavirus, something they haven't seen before. Then how do you know that's going to happen? Exactly. Yeah. It could or it couldn't. But yeah, there's no way to know. There's no way to know. Sorry, but 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 when they say things with such certainty like that, I go like, well, yeah. Hold up a second. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna choose to be a, a little more hopeful, <laughs> mainly because I just want some sort of normalcy within this year. You know, I mean, I keep hearing like, oh, it's never gonna go back to normal, or maybe it'll be back to normal next year or whatever, but. I'm like, uh, I know we still have. Yeah, well, you know, I've heard, I've heard that. I've been around enough. I've, I've heard that too. Yeah. You know? Well, you thank know? you so I said much. That after 9/11. Yeah, no kidding. I said that after 9/11, never be ever be normal again. Well, yes, it was, and in some way it wasn't. True. But um, we get through anything, 
you know. But look, thank you so much for reaching out to me. I really, really do appreciate this on a special edition of the Directors Club. Yeah, thank you so much, Sergio. It was great to talk with you because I keep seeing the post for Blue Collar. I'm like, ah, that's not enough. I want to actually talk um, a little bit about it. And I'm glad we did because it's such an important film and I want people to see it along with the other ones we talked about. So thanks again, man. We'll, we'll be in touch. I'm sure there'll be a, 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 an older director... Uh, later in the year <laughs> that we'll, 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 we'll get in touch with you about. I was born by the river In a little tent Oh, and just like the river I've been running Ever since It's been a long A long time coming But I know Change gon' come 